Well, a very good afternoon to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Drive Time here on Fuds on Film FM. I'm Scott Boris. We'll be getting you home safely with our usual mix of smooth jazz and happy hardcore. Joining me on the news desk today is Drew Tavendale. Oh, I wanted to be in the helicopter. <laughs> Not really, of course, the simple power of suggestion. Uh, we're here to talk about some films that we saw in July, because that's what we do. The first of those films being Toy Story 4. Drew. Yes. Okay, I'd like to begin by reading to you the first paragraph of an article published in The Atlantic entitled How Pixar Lost Its Way. A well-regarded Hollywood insider recently suggested that sequels can represent a sort of creative bankruptcy. He was discussing Pixar, the legendary animation studio, and its avowed distaste for cheap spin-offs. More pointedly, he argued that if Pixar were only to make sequels, it would wither and die. Now, all kinds of industry experts say all kinds of things. But it is surely relevant that these observations were made by Ed Catmull, the president of Pixar, in his best-selling 2014 business leadership book. That's the first paragraph of the article, which was published in 2017, shortly before the release of Cars 3, a sequel, and the year after the release of Finding Dory, a sequel. The next year saw the release of Incredibles 2, a sequel, and now we have Toy Story 4, a sequel. It was the fear of many when Disney bought Pixar, including myself, that Disney's own lack of regard for its creative output would sully the reputation of Pixar. But many were soothed, I guess would be the word, by the widely reported avowed distaste for sequels within Pixar, and then-CEO John Lasseter's statement that if we have a great story, we'll do a sequel which certainly precedes sequels, but suggested that at least they would be done with care. Seven of Pixar's 21 feature films to date, fully one-third, have been sequels. Creative bankruptcy may be an extreme term, but it's certainly not great, especially given how poor some of those sequels are. However, and despite much pessimism, Pixar's Toy Story films have been excellent, but the biggest issue I have with Toy Story 4 is that it exists at all, as Toy Story 3 had done such a fine and touching job of wrapping up its character stories and sending them off into a happy future. It was a truly satisfying ending, a passing of the torch. But they just could not resist going back to that well. And, well, the trailers for Toy Story 4 started appearing and words like lacklustre and underwhelming found themselves floating through my mind accompanying the persistent thought of just leave it be, it was done. Well, I should probably start actually talking about Toy Story 4 though. The toys are now firmly established as Bonnie's rather than Andy's, though their day-to-day life is much as we've become familiar with over the years. However, Woody, Tom Hanks, is finding it difficult to adapt to not being the favoured plaything. Seeking an opportunity for an important role, Woody hides himself inside of Bonnie's backpack as she attends her first day at kindergarten and provides her with the materials with which she makes Forky, Veep's Tony Hale, her new toy, which helps her through the experience. Bonnie's parents then decide to take a road trip in an RV for a week before kindergarten starts in earnest and the toys go along for the ride. With a stressed Woody assuming all responsibility for protecting the confused, trash-loving Forky from himself. Things naturally go awry and Woody finds himself apart from the other toys in an antique shop, trying to save Forky. Along the way, he encounters new toys, like the totally not evil Knievel Honest Duke Kaboom, (laughs) voiced by Keanu Reeves, and the super, super, super creepy, creepy doll Gabby Gabby. Voiced by Christina Hendricks and her super disturbing hench dummies. One thing that can definitely be said in Toy Story 4's favour it looks phenomenal. Pixar have always demonstrated supreme technical skill, and since starting the 3D animated feature genre, they have remained the technical standard bearers. Another podcast I listened to, a huge but hypercritical Pixar fan, tweeted after seeing this that. The parade of -of middle-of-the-road CG animated film trailers in front of Toy Story 4 only served to emphasise the comically large gap in visual quality between Pixar and its rivals. A lot of it is art direction and shot design, but it's also just plain technical brilliance. And frankly, I couldn't agree more. 
everything advertised before this looked like hot garbage, whereas Toy Story 4 is beautiful. Pixar's particular gift with lighting being again at the forefront. Technical brilliance means little, of course, if the story isn't any good. So we should probably address the elephant in the room, even if that will probably fall foul of postal regulations and be returned. (laughs) I'm not even sorry. (laughs) The screenplay from Pixar stalwart Andrew Stanton and relative newcomer Stephanie Folsom is warm and sharp and, if not hugely original, consistently funny and entertaining. And likewise the direction from Josh Cooley, here stepping up from shorts to feature directing. It's polished, high quality entertainment, but falls short of the other Toy Story films because it's just not special. Very good, yes, but not special. Do I begrudge its existence? Yes, yes I do. (laughs) But do I regret watching it? Absolutely not. Um, But again, it just shouldn't be... (laughs) <laughs> much like Forky itself because <laughs> this thing wants to throw itself in the trash um, yeah I agree pretty much 100% I have very I had very low expectations going into it for the reasons you've laid out and I watched it and I enjoyed it and I've barely thought about it since which yeah. is a little unfortunate given that uh, Toy Story 3 in particular was such a such a resounding kick in the emotionals. Um, yes. It, it, provo- it provoked all of the feels, whereas Toy Story 4 provoked maybe a quarter of a feel at one point. Um, <laughs> and as I enjoyed it, there's probably a number of individual scenes that are as good as anything that's in any other Toy Story film. Um, but stitched together, it's just sort of fine. It's a good film and I enjoyed watching it. And I will probably not think of it again as long as I'm around. Uh, it just doesn't have, it does seem to have a lot of ambition other than to put these characters out there again. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put that. Yeah. It's, it's not trying to do anything new or different. It's just it's more of the same. And it's very good same, Yeah, but it's same. I mean, I'd, I'd rather they do more of these films and keep up this level of quality rather than something like Cars, which wasn't that good in the first place, but exactly. sold so many toys that, uh, well, creative bankruptcy aside, they certainly weren't going in the sort of physical sense of bankruptcy with the amount of merchandise they were selling, so I understand the rationale for making more of those films, even if there's not actually any real um, artistic merit to them. Yeah, um, it's but, something crazy like, say, $2 billion a year or something that Disney yeah. were raking in, at least with the Cars merchandising. It's yeah, ludicrous, crazy. isn't it? Yeah, so I'd rather have more of these films if they can keep up this sort of level of doing good films that I don't really have any huge complaints about. That's fine, but for a franchise that I kind of expected more from, I guess it's a little disappointing. Yeah, no, but even as we say, even flat, it's still quite funny. It was still quite entertaining, and I enjoyed my time watching it. So, Celebi. Yeah, where it succeeds, whereas a lot of other Pixar sequels haven't, is like Monsters University is is it just trying to force its characters into that irritating university fraternal society nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't fit, and it's got it's got sort of emotional connection with the original film. Yeah, Finding Dory was fine, but it was just Finding Nemo again. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, the Cars films, let's just not talk about them, they're appalling. But yeah, Toy Story, at, at least there's 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 some heart in it. There's well-established characters that they still find a couple of novel things to do with, even if for a lot of the time they're just sort of relying on your familiarity with mm-hmm. the characters and their personalities for jokes without doing anything particularly new for the most part. But yeah, it's still, it's a solid quality film. I enjoyed it, I just... I want something to do something special or different because in between all of those seemingly interminable sequels they were doing they do something Inside Out I had problems with it but that was quite an interesting idea they were yeah. trying themselves and then they had the amazing Coco mm-hmm. and then straight back to another underwhelming sequel <sighs> I think my main complaint with this is it was played very safe there yeah. is yeah. 
Given how it ended, I, I thought they would perhaps spend more time introducing some new characters or building up something else that you could then do in a sort of toy story, maybe hand over the torch to some new set of toys or something because it's a new kid that's playing with them. It should be different. It shouldn't yeah. be the same one, but they kind of punted on that. And yeah, I don't know if they're... Presumably they will return to this either through another film or no doubt some kind of streaming spin-off for these Disney services that are no doubt need to be <laughs> got a lot of time they need to fill so we'll probably see this again uh, in what form I guess we'll need to find out I, I was wondering whether it was trying to set up a, a sort of Woody spin-off series as his adventures out, in, <laughs> out by himself or something like that and maybe that could have more impact maybe that could be interesting if you can influence to get Tom Hanks uh, to, on board I don't know but um, yeah this so. just seemed like a safe way to do it yeah, but I wasn't sure that I had sort of two thoughts there. One was that they would do something like that, which I can see happening. It almost feels like it would be the Toy Story version of Little Sobo. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be something like that. Um, or that there's like, well, Tom Max is done with this now. He's been doing it for more than two decades. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, it, it does feel like the, there will be more because this, the ending of this felt sequel friendly, whereas the ending of Toy Story 3 Definitely absolutely did, yes. did not. Yeah. And they still made one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah I, I don't know I mean, I mean if they're going to try to replicate their success with anything Toy Story is, is the, the one where they've been consistently good yeah um, but still I'd, I want to do something different something better something original yes yes um, and the next two films that are slated are pure new films which is good um, but to to only been the, uh, making films for 20 years and then have an entire third of your films that you've made be sequels that's slightly concerning yes it's a bit Ubisofty. um <laughs> yeah um yeah. Ju- again just to reiterate because again we're sounding a bit negative about it it's good i enjoyed it i recommend people watch it but yeah, I, mean, yeah, it's, it's I just wish very, it was a little more uh, ambitious yeah exactly yeah it's a very very enjoyable film and it it doesn't tarnish Toy Story's reputation or anything like that. Um, it's just that Toy Story 3, I mean, I know there have been a couple of shorts since then. Yeah. I've had these shorts of now, like um, Hawaiian Vacation and Small Fry and stuff. I think those are post Toy Story 3. Um, but, like, coming back to the, for wee snippets like that, that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that, actually. Mm. Um, but Toy Story 3's ending was, was just so nice. It was touching and it was so final for the cards. Like, kind of hopeful and it's like, all oh, right, toys have a life, they carry on, they other children. Yeah, but in terms of like that universe and those characters, oh, Vicky, right, this is a nice ending. It's finished. Oh, no, they had, they just had to pick yeah. it, didn't they? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's the biggest problem is the absolute sense of frustration. Could you just leave stuff yes. alone? My only problem with you, sir, is that you exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm aware of the potential hypocrisy of like, well, I paid to well use my Cineworld Unlimited card but still they mm. get money from Cineworld for that so <laughs> I paid to go to see this so that kind of perpetuates it mm. <laughs> I'm aware of that potential conflict there so I was like well I don't want this to exist yeah. but if, if people keep going to see it they will I mean but it's I to just do something different because Pixar definitely have had failures The Good Dinosaur is just which I think I almost forget exists most of the time I suspect mm. most people do as well it's like could they all up a Pixar film, wasn't it? Yeah, it's rotten. Um, well, no, rotten song. The Cars films are rotten. Good Dinosaur's just massively generic and underwhelming and barely memorable. So, I mean, they have sort of stretched themselves to try something different and it's not always worked. And then, but then they do something different too, like, again, like, like Coco, and it's amazing. Yeah. So they clearly still have, like, the talent and the passion and stuff. It's just. It's the creative direction that concerns me a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. Two brand new films coming out in the future. It's, it's, it's maybe less... I mean, you've mentioned exactly what the problem is, Scott. It's less the feature film direction that worries me at the moment in terms of like quality and reputation and stuff. It's like what Disney are going to do with this for their streaming services. Yeah. I am concerned about that because it's not like Disney don't um, haven't just like had lots of terrible generic um Saturday morning series and stuff for years for based on their popular cartoons or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yeah, if the if the MCU is winding down to a degree, I guess, 
then they're going to be missing all of the money. So yeah, <laughs> yes, I mean, they, apparently you know just sort of a nice amount of money regularly isn't enough. They're like video. We're back to Ubisoft, aren't we? Mm. They, they basically want all of the money. Yes. <laughs> At least so far, we've not had microtransactions. Give it a while. Disney is a service. (laughs) That's basically what these um, subscription things are going to be. They are becoming AAA game developers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, I think before we just get too negative and whiny about Disney, um, will we move on, Scott? I think we've... Have we finished with the discussion of Toy Story? Okay, let's move on to something that isn't Toy Story. It's something that is a romantic comedy written by Richard Curtis, which scares me. <laughs> yes. Speaking of going back to the well, uh, yes. Uh, yesterday sees singer-songwriter Hivesh Patel's Jack Malik finally give up on his dreams of success after years of failing to make a splash in a local pub circuit, much to the disappointment of his manager, his ex-schoolfriend and now school teacher, Lily James's Ellie Appleton. However, during a mysterious global blackout slash glitch in the Matrix, Jack is knocked off his bike by a bus and on recovering finds that the world has, somehow, had all knowledge and evidence of the Beatles scrubbed from it. Uh, In short, he goes about re-recording as much of their catalogue as he can remember and while he's still not an overnight success, eventually he turns enough heads to get a supporting gig on the Ed Sheeran tour, lighting a rocket that will propel him to fame and acclaim and all the trappings that accompany being a massive star these days. But this will take a toll on his personal life and his mental state. Now, there's the odd moment where yesterday looks like it's going to veer into examining something interesting in this premise, and there is promise in that premise. Uh, could presenting songs written 50 to 60 years ago achieve the same level of success in today's very different cultural landscape? How would pop culture have changed having removed one of the biggest influences on pop and rock? Can someone really connect to an audience recreating some songs that were fairly personal to Lennon and McCartney? Can you pluck songs from the very different eras of the Beatles' career arc and present them together without sounding like you have multiple personalities? disorder. Uh, how has the nature of music creating, production and fandom changed since the 60s and would that make a difference to how the work is received? Can you manage a more blatant product placement of Pepsi? Tellingly, for modern cinema, the only question out of those that yesterday seems interested in answering is about product placement. Uh, there's a few half-hearted lunge at some others, but they're so underdeveloped that I kind of wish they hadn't bothered. Uh, sure, as the Brothers Gallagher admitted yonks ago, if there's no Beatles, there's no Oasis, but there's also apparently no other impact on other recording artists or entire genres or wider culture in general that's worth exploring or, well, even mentioning. Now, I'm perhaps not as annoyed by the waste of the premise as I might have been, because I paid attention at the one part uh, that mattered in the trailer, that part where it says written by Richard Curtis <laughs> and I knew exactly what bill of goods I was being sold is a slight variation on the same trite romance he's been rewriting since four weddings and a funeral hung from a slightly different scaffolding. I mean this is a guy that can take a a film that is nominally about a guy that has a time travelling cupboard and turn it into the <laughs> same trite romance that he's been rewriting since four weddings and a funeral. I wonder if you're going to mention that. Yeah. You've been quite salty about that film back yes. in one day. Aye, so um, does this romance work? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the problem is that Jack Malik, or if we're being a bit less charitable, Himesh Patel, not only isn't the most dynamic man frontman or screen premise, he's barely a character at all. And quite what Ellie would see in this sack of unmixed concrete is, at any point, let alone years later, is entirely beyond me. The other main axis his character is exploring is the toll taken by passing off someone else's work as his own, and the perhaps warranted imposter system uh, syndrome that that provokes. Now, to be scrupulously fair, Patel is much better at getting that across, culminating in a version of help that does actually sound like someone dealing with an existential crisis. The film's supporting characters don't quite get the material they need to provide support, unfortunately, but through no real fault of the actors. Lily James is likeable, but their pre-existing relationship isn't all that well explored enough to have much emotional impact when it changes as the story progresses. And as that's the main string to this film's bow, it can't help but misfire. The comic support fares a little better, with another spiky Kate McKinnon turn and Joel Fry's gormless roadie Rocky raising a few laughs. It's also great to see UK comic TV mainstays Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sayal on the big screen as Malik's parents. And now, for his faults... 
Curtis still knows how to craft a furry line, and Danny Boyle has his best production hat on, So you're n- and you're never that far away from a rendition of a great tune, so it is not completely insufferable. In fact, I enjoyed this much more than I expected. But, as I expected to loathe it, that's not exactly the most glowing recommendation now, is it? Um, sadly, a bit of the waste of the no doubt millions it cost to license the songs. Yes, as I say, not as bad as I feared. Um, and if you stumble across it, it's a, a diverting enough way to spend a couple of hours in a way that... Um, whatever that time-travelling one was, which I can't quite remember the name of. Um, that, that very much wasn't. This is perfectly acceptable entertainment, but not really a much more than that. And yes, it is a complete waste of, on the surface, seemed to be a good idea that you could do a bit of exploring in, and it's more or less ignored all of that, which is a bit of a shame. Yes, not bad, but could have been so much better. What was that film? Was it called About Time? That's the one, yes. Yeah. Domino Gleeson, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I haven't watched because, yeah, you very much turned me off. Not I was likely to, to be honest, yeah. but uh, you very much turned me <laughs> off of that one. I haven't even seen the the trailer for this. I was, <laughs> this will sound weird, but I was somewhat put off by the the poster still because every time I walk past the stands in the cinema, the guy, um, his name, I wasn't actually paying enough attention to remember <laughs> there. Himesh Patel? Hemish Patel, thank you. Um, he bore more than a passing resemblance to Lewis Hamilton, as far as I was concerned. So, and, and Lewis Hamilton is one of the greatest drivers of all time, but I can't stand him. He's an asshat. So <laughs> like, that turned me off, which was absolutely nothing to do with him or the film. But, uh, uh, but most of it was like, hey, I love the Beatles. I like Danny Boyle, but Richard Curtis. Yes. Um, which is why I didn't bother trying to get to this, um, yeah. and I probably won't. No, no, it's it's not really worth making an effort to see. If you stumble across it, if it happens across you, it's not terrible. But yeah, it's, it's, can't really give it much of a glowing recommendation. There's certainly better films to watch, uh, well, in general, but even just at the cinema at the moment. I'm, I'm trying to think now if I've seen anything by Richard Curtis that I like, and I'm coming up with a blank... Um, I don't like Blackadder. I don't think it's very good. Oh, right. Well, yeah. In that um, case, I suspect you probably would not like this at all, then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are bits and pieces of Blackadder, like... Actually, that's not fair. Maybe it's, maybe it's just the first Blackadder I'm not that fond of. Hmm. The, um, two and three actually aren't too bad. So maybe, yeah, there's something. And uh, Vicar Dibley's just really generic. Hmm. I mean, like, it's, there's a vaguely amusing bits but then they just keep repeating the same jokes over and over and over <laughs> um, and then anything film wise, particularly things like Four Weddings at a Funeral and Love Actually, it's like nah these are all terrible <laughs> Yeah, uh, Love Actually is particularly offensive uh, It's just with, if you watch that again with any sort of critical eye, particularly in terms of way basically, it's back to your Kishlovsky thing, it's Creepy Bastard Wish Fulfillment, yes. there's a lot of creepy <laughs> stuff in that film, absolutely yeah um, as well as the fact that also that film is everyone that's ever existed, I think, as yeah. an approximate number of characters. Yes. Yeah, so it's the Richard Curtis angle that's turning me off because I, I like Danny Boyle. I've seen so many of his films that I've really enjoyed. Hmm. Yeah, and then to actually squander what could have been a really interesting premise if you take away a cultural touchstone. Yeah, yeah. Um, Doesn't get into it at all, really. Yeah, what a waste. Barely touches it, a bit of a waste, yeah. That's a real pity. So yeah, there's an interesting idea in there. Mm-hmm. Not just like the sort of the morality of the lying and stuff or anything like that. It's like just yeah, the other things you said. It's got like the idea of like the relevance yeah. of older music, but also when that has just been completely taken out of like all the decades of people building on that. Yeah, whether like it, there may be an artist who's absolutely no idea they're influenced by the Beatles, but they are because they're influenced by a band who's influenced by a band who's influenced by the Beatles. You know, yeah. so there's so much. I mean, it wouldn't be easy to write, I think, mm-hmm. because you'd have to do a really strong bit of world building for that to really work. Yeah. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, they didn't bother at all. No, it is literally like they've just surgically cut out the Beatles catalogue and had that exist in isolation from everyone else. And, I mean, yes, I get it. It would be incredibly speculative to come up with any of that, but isn't that kind of the point if you're going to do something like this isn't that what you're looking for or if you are going to do it that way you need to give some kind of credence as to how just if you just rocked up with the Beatles catalogue now and started singing it now Mm -hmm. 
there aren't that many songs written 50 to 60 years ago that you can present these days and people would just go, yes, this is clearly a fantastic tune and I'm on board with this without, you know, culture has moved on. You know, hip-hop wasn't really a thing when the Beatles were about, but they kind of are now. <laughs> hip-hop has influenced pretty much everything. And the way it's kind of presented here doesn't reflect any of that at all. So any cultural changes that's happened since 1560s was, has not really been taken any cognizance of in the way that this is presented. But everyone just goes, oh, well, obviously these are the best music musical things that have ever happened and eat them up as we, as we would have done back in the 60s as, we, uh, as, as though Beatlemania sort of happened again. And so even that aspect of it is it doesn't get properly examined. It's it's just a waste of the premise, really. Um, um, the, the Beatles tried so many different genres too, and in the remarkably short time the Beatles were together, yeah. the music changed phenomenally. I don't mm. think any other band has changed quite so much, certainly not in such a short time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can't just imagine in 2019 you could suddenly rock up singing I Want to Hold Your Hand and expect people to get behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it just sounds archaic. Yes, and uh, parts of it does. It's yes, it's a, it's a weird and frustrating film where the premise has the premise has been underserved, and really, when you strip the premise away from it, it's just the same romance story that he's been writing for forever. Um, if you take away the sort of sci-fi gimmick of removing the Beatles and all the kind of alternate reality sort of things that it's, that it's trying to get into, it is just the story of someone becoming successful and losing their roots and the same, the exact same story you've seen several million times yeah. before by this point. Um, you know, yeah, it's Danny Boyle, so it's really well done and it's all very slickly <laughs> produced and all that and it's enjoyable, but it's there's nothing new about it when you strip away the one thing that is new, but just they haven't bothered uh, exploring fully, which is a bit frustrating, really. That's a shame. Sounds like if you want to watch some sort of romantic comedy that is based on music, you should just watch Once instead, because it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not really connected to that, just to, because I'm thinking of, of films with sort of romantic bits in them uh, yeah. with music and I, was, I thought about Once and Once is, is just a great film yeah. but yeah watch that instead and don't give Richard Curtis any adulation yeah or nine songs <laughs> no <laughs> no no Scott Scott you're a bad Scott <laughs> speaking of um, bad men I guess that, will that work <laughs> Lucas we don't get any better at this do we no not at all no, uh, it's a French name, so in fact, Luca, but um, Lucas, if you, oh, yeah. if you prefer so, but Luca, or The Bouncer, as it is titled in English markets, is a French-Belgian co-production starring Jean-Claude Van Damme's Luca, a nightclub bouncer in Brussels and sole parent of an eight-year-old girl. It's clear Luca loves his daughter and that they have a good relationship. So it would be terrible if one or numerous persons were to use his daughter as a pawn to <laughs> coerce him to do things. Luca is sacked after an aggressive customer of the nightclub is injured, through no fault of Luca's, and a police investigation is opened. Thanks to a friend, he quickly finds another security job, though he has to fight several other men to a standstill in order to obtain it. Shortly after, Luca is approached by Maxime Zeroal, Sami Boagila, a Europol detective who informs Luca that his new employer is a major counterfeiter and uses Luca's daughter as a pawn to coerce him to work for him and spy on his boss. <laughs> oh dear. So impressed by his performance in his interview and short on manpower, the counterfeiter, Jan Decker, Sam Lewick, enlists Luca's help in the abduction of a drug manufacturer by kidnapping his daughter and using her as a pawn <laughs> to coerce him. <laughs> this and further impressive performances see Luca brought further into Deckard's trust, allowing him to gain the information the police need about his operation. Then there will be blood. Uh, I watched Luca as I was quite excited by the sort of post-JCVD work. That's the film, not the actor. Uh, Sadly, it's not the knockout I was hoping for, but it's still an effective and low-key little thriller. The script, from Jeremy Gay and director Julien Leclerc, is quite light in dialogue, letting the action and, perhaps most importantly, and surprisingly, Jean-Claude Van Damme's face do much of the storytelling and character work. The Belgian looks weary and nigh-on haunted throughout, and it's remarkably effective, creating pathos and sympathy with seemingly little effort. And the natural, unforced relationship with his daughter, Alice Verset, adds more. Of course, this is Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Leclerc isn't going to let one of his most valuable assets go to waste, but the action scenes, while reasonably intense, are sparingly used and believable. 
His tryout for the job particularly stands out. JCVD may be getting older, though he's clearly still a specimen, but the fight is portrayed as awkward, dirty and brutal, and more real than many movie brawls, requiring minimal suspension of disbelief that he came out on top. Mm-hmm. Grim JCVD plus Grim Brussels equals a reasonably enjoyable experience, uh, particularly if you're a Van Damme fan. Yes, I like this quite a lot. It's not doing anything remotely new or genre-redefining or anything like that, uh, no. but it's a very efficiently, almost too efficiently told, um, uh, sort of neo-noir, I guess. Um, you know, particularly if you, if you can get past the first 10 minutes, which requires a... It, it, it's setting up its premise in a very time-efficient manner, shall we say, which requires a little <laughs> bit of suspense of disbelief. Um, but once you get past that, um, yeah, I, I was actually really enjoying it. Um, it's just a, quite a compelling central performance from Jean-Claude. Um, he has a chance to act a bit more than you'd normally yeah. give him credit for. And, I mean, Which I, he can do, if yeah, so turns out. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing interviews with him you know, some time back when he was probably still at the height of his cocaine fueled um, Street Fighter-esque um, era where you know, he, was, he was interviewed saying it. I think perhaps a little bit self-deprecatingly saying that he knows what his audience comes for and it's not watching him try to do Hamlet or something but it turns <laughs> out maybe maybe he's just had more practice at it since then um, but he can actually act quite well he can get across a character um, he can get across a fairly what would seem to be a quite complicated and haunted past without actually mentioning any of it you know there's a, some oblique reference to what he was doing in South Africa but there's no real detail there but he somehow gets across a full character from that uh, just from a few hints and some facial expressions and the way he comports himself and uh, yeah I agree with everybody else some nicely effective uh, fight scenes and the central story is uh, not winning any awards for massive originality but it all works pretty well um, and has certainly kept me intrigued for the 90 minutes it's a fairly short film as well isn't it it's yeah, not yeah fairly compact and uh, Efficient film, yeah, it's it's quite enjoyable. If you've any interest in the sort of thrillers, it's certainly much more effective than the um, what was the one that we spoke about a little while back with uh, Jackie Chan, the one that was that was briefly oh, called the Chinaman, the foreigner, the foreigner. That's the one, yeah. Um, so it's I guess similar sort of pattern uh, as that one, but I think this one's a bit more effective. It's a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a better story and a bit of a better uh, central through line with it. So yes, yeah, I'd recommend no. it. No problematic politics either. Exactly, yes. <laughs> like that I had with whatever they were doing with Pierce Brosnan's character and that and the connection <laughs> with the IRA. And yeah. Not that they ever mentioned that, I don't believe. But, uh, yeah. Oh, the... I'm sort of hoping to be blown away, but I was, if you look back sort of early to mid-80s, Jean-Claude Van Damme, he wasn't greatly acting. Uh, no. Maybe part of that's the type of films he was in, but when you see like, I mean, that, We've mentioned it before, and quite recently too, but the absolutely ludicrous moments of him trying to pretend he's blind in the fight <laughs> blood sport. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, I've remarked before, and as people know that, acting, very much one of those things you can get better with is with age. Yes. Um, and I think he's an absolute prime example of it. Yes, yes. Um, and there's just sort of a, a weariness to him in this film mm-hmm. um, that just works really well with the character. So it's, it's good that it's so... We should at least, I think, maybe see hints here and there. Certainly not in Street Fighter, um, and probably not in his prime cocaine <laughs> days, but yes. most then, certainly from JCVD onwards, that we bit of self-deprecation, which is nice. Yes. Uh, but also just, yeah, he's, he's added, well, he's clearly still got like, physical ability. It's not as immediately imposing as a, as a Sly Stallone or something, because mm. um, he's not built like that, I think. But there's still, like, believable strength and skill in his fighting added to that um, he's gained some acting ability um, and he makes for a really quite compelling guy to watch yes yes um, and you mentioned that people don't come for Hamlet well if uh, Arnie can play Hamlet <laughs> as he quite clearly did in the last action hero very convincingly the yes. JCVD can <laughs> the only thing I'm going to say about this film um, before we move on Scott the other thing is that I, because you mentioned too about the sort of very efficient setup and the fact that this is, is a, it bombs along quite quickly too. Yeah, I very much encourage anyone who's interested in seeing this, and if you're a JCVD fan, that should be you. Um, it's, find the French cut of this because, well, 
while I originally started trying to find a French cut because the English release is, instead of being subtitled, dubbed, um, which I have a visceral hatred of. Mm. The uh, English cut is eight minutes shorter than the French and Belgian cut. And I'm wondering, <laughs> how on earth did find eight minutes to take <laughs> out? Yeah. Yeah, there's not an awful lot of fat in this film. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> It's a one hundred and it's a one hour thirty four minute film that really bombs along quickly. Um, Scott mentioned, um, I guess it's set up done very very swiftly. Um, <laughs> and what on earth did they manage to um, remove from this? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, um, which makes me think it must surely be a worse cut. You would, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so if you can, if you're interested in this, seek out the French cut. Which um, although weirdly. I got the, I got hold of the French cut, and it's got all the French titles of the director and stuff. But then the the title still in English, the bouncer, which is weird because the French don't like to use English if they can avoid it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was odd, but uh, <laughs> apropos of nothing. But yes, uh, seek out the French cut, which you probably find under the name Luca rather than the bouncer. And yeah, hopefully enjoy it if you like JCBD. Indeed, but would you also enjoy? Men in Black International. That'll do. True. <laughs> yeah, one day. One day we'll get a good segue, Scott. At least that wasn't even trying for a bad one. That was just like, here's the next film. That'll... 1997's Men in Black was a pretty big hit, actually, making nearly $600 million on a budget of $90 million. It was also reasonably entertaining and with a fairly interesting concept. But it didn't feel at the time that it would become a franchise. Rather, it felt more of a one-and-done sort of thing. And that would have been fine. Mm. And it certainly didn't feel like a film that 22 years later would be seeing its third sequel, particularly after the crap show that was Men in Black 2. <laughs> to be fair, four films in 22 years certainly isn't overkill, but it's not exactly the most hotly anticipated thing ever. And I'm sure it wasn't alone in greeting its announcement with a shoulder shrug and a... Eh? <laughs> Now, while I get into the setup, I want you to keep that in mind, because we'll be coming back to that later. <laughs> Verging on soft reboot territory, Men in Black International sees Tessa Thompson's Molly succeed after spending a lifetime trying to find a way into the MIB organisation after she sees them wipe the memories of her parents after an alien encounter. Training completed, she is dispatched by Emma Thompson's Agent O. Apparently a returning character, showing just how much of an impression Men in Black 3 made in me, as I only realised this afterwards, uh, to the London office where she meets Liam Neeson's High T and Chris Evansworth's Agent H, who will be her partner going forward. Their first assignment together goes disastrously wrong and culminates in her receiving a warning about trust, along with a highly sought after weapon with literally the power of an entire star. The warning brings her to the conclusion that there's a mole in the MIB and you will absolutely not have worked out who it is five minutes before you even knew there was a mole. (laughs) H&M, yes, H&M, are framed and must go on the run to clear their name and keep the deadly weapon safe. Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth then utterly failed to have any chemistry or charm at all for 90 minutes, Thor Ragnarok apparently having starred their clones, after which the film ends. (laughs) <laughs> Men in Black International is very much barest of style over absolutely no substance and demonstrates numerous examples of objects or ideas being introduced because someone thought it should be there or maybe would look good without anyone knowing what to do with it or why. For example, a high-speed train is disguised as a vandalised and beaten up New York subway train despite already being inside the MIB's super-secret base. A lengthy sequence then plays out where the subway train is transformed into a sleek, silvery, futuristic bullet train, taking longer to do so than the subsequent journey to London actually takes for the passengers. And then in London it stays in its transformed state, before moving on to another city and never being seen again. What's the point? (laughs) It's an egregious example of set piece for the sake of set piece, entirely divorced from narrative or character. Matt Holloway in Art Markham's script also touches on the very masculine nature of the organisation's name and then does absolutely nothing with it. (laughs) Likewise, many aliens are initially framed here as immigrants or asylum seekers, 
And that goes absolutely nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it's not even tokenism. I can almost imagine the conversation. Gender equality and immigration are big topics right now. We should put that in. Yeah! Okay, we mentioned them. What next? Next? What do you mean? We mentioned them, right? Yes. Well, isn't that enough? It's not like it has to have any through line or impact on the story, right? Yeah, yeah, you make a good point. We should just write some more scenes with jokes about the size of guns. <laughs> we are te-awesome. Uh, I very much want to call Men in Black International meh in black, but apparently so does half the world. <laughs> Obvious, cliched, lazy, but also wholly accurate and descriptive. The film itself is also obvious, cliched and lazy. I can't hate it. I don't want to spend that much energy on it. <laughs> it's just not worth it. <laughs> yes, I, I couldn't even muster the enthusiasm to drag myself to the cinema to watch it. It's um, <laughs> it, it seems like a, a bad idea and something that didn't really need to be revisited. And I don't know, I, 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 I suppose I had allowed myself a little bit of hope because... The, the Thor double act was so good. Yeah, exactly. I, I was hoping they could recapture something and the, the general concept of Men in Black as a franchise could have been rebooted. It seems like, you know, it's not a bad concept for a film you could produce more films out of. I mean, you've got pretty much an infinite playbook of things to draw from when you start pulling in aliens and all that sort of stuff. That that could work. But, um, yes, by all accounts, it didn't. So I didn't bother going to see it. Um, and I'm... Sounds like that was probably the right decision on my part. Yeah. You'll probably have seen Scott, before Ben and Black Interstate came out, there was a run where they had Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth doing kind of to the audience bits before films. <laughs> where they looked like they'd never met each other before. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly how they are to the whole film. Hmm. So if, you've, if you've seen those, you know exactly how much they lack any chemistry or charisma during the film. Yeah, that's a pity. Um. <laughs> yes, I saw those and I thought well, they they look like they're basically contractually forced to do this or something. They're not happy to be there. Yeah, but no, it's like they're like completely two different. You know, it's like two completely different people from how they were in Thor Ragnarok. It's yeah. bizarre. No, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, but it's been it did terribly at the box office. Absolutely pillowed in reviews. Uh, probably slightly harsher than it deserves, but it's, there's just not really any reason to care about it or anything in it. It doesn't deserve the anger of like a really negative review or anything. It's just, yeah. eh. well, I've seen it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Not so good. I'm going to move on to something that may be better. Wait a minute. Give me a second. I'm going to try and think of some really <laughs> torture segue here. Come on, Men International Road men, Trip Europe. Men in <laughs> Black International. And then there's a Spider-Man who becomes a man in black. He does. There we go. <laughs> go Night Monkey. Yes. Uh, Spider-Man Far From Home is what we're labouring towards with that. <laughs> um, so what exactly do you do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe after the most ambitious crossover event in cinematic history, TM Disney, all rights reserved? Uh, you know, the one where you killed and then five years later unkilled half of the universe. Did you answer jokingly blow by it? Congratulations, you win a ticket to Spider-Man Far From Home. As you'd expect, the follow-up <laughs> to Homecoming, and as, to be fair, you'd probably also expect, a film that is much more concerned with the Iron Man-shaped hole in the MC universe. Uh, but Tom Holland's Peter Parker, whoever, just wants a holiday. Fair enough. Uh, being dematerialised and reconstituted five years later, an event now known as the Blip, and having your superhero mentor die is a lot to process. However, thankfully slash conveniently, his supporting cast of friends and frenemies all blipped alongside him, almost as though that crossover event isn't quite as ambitious as it thinks it is. <laughs> so, despite society by rights having been shattered entirely, the most pressing issue for these kids is a school summer trip to Europe, tourism being a prime concern, and I'm sorry, I won't mention it again, but it's super weird that this film completely glosses over what ought to be the society-shattering clacalism as no real biggie in an attempt to rush back to normality. Um, which I suppose has form in the comic book world, but I'd really been hoping for better. I'd given Marvel some credit in Endgame for writing in that a five-year gap is opening up some really interesting storytelling opportunities rather than a simple return to the status quo, which I've been uh, expecting. But if they're going to treat it as a simple return to the status quo, I'm going to finger-snap that praise back from it because it's really, really weird. 
Right, anyhow, back at the ranch. Trouble follows Peter Parker, uh, really getting in the way of his plans to express his true feelings for Zendaya's Mary Jane. Trouble in this instance being defined by huge, terrifying, city-endangering elemental beasties straight out of a JRPG that have an under-equipped Spider-Man, having not packed his high-tech supersuit, uh, will have trouble banishing, but he's helped by Jake Gyllenhaal's mysterious... Um, Mysterio, with his lavish cape, smoky goldfish bowl helmet and sparkling clean razor masts. What a hero. Before long, he and Parker strike up a friendly relationship, uh, and with Nick Fury and the remnants of S.H.I.E.L.D. on board, Peter decides that, actually, the keys for the Tony Stark left him to an AI buddy that also controls an orbital strike platform would be better entrusted to Mysterio, a grown-ass man, a hero from an alternate dimension that's not some punk kid struggling with the expectations being put on him. Now, without getting too deep into spoilers, let's just say that Mysterio is not quite what he seems and that Parker will have cause to regret that decision and seek to undo it. Now, I've already, I trust, made clear my greatest bugbear with Far From Home, so I won't repeat that. Uh, the rest of it, though, I'm largely on board with, mostly. Um, Holland is, again, really charming, and so are the interactions with Gyllenhaal, both in the film and the press junkets they've been doing. Uh, the supporting cast are all pretty good, and while I suppose if this sort of thing annoys you, you may be seeing tourist postcard hotspots being crushed again, may have you rolling your eyes, but undeniably it's more visually appealing than the action taking place in a supermarket car park. And, well, it does turn out that there's a reasonable explanation for that plot-wise, and at least uh, Spoken Mirror's element does make a lot of the action more interesting in the final stretch, and directly attacks what I think was both of our concerns going into this, basically that this would seek to have Peter Parker directly replace Tony Stark. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to like the answer that they've settled on, going by what's so far the only mid-credits Marvel scene worth sticking around for, but at least they have explored it a little bit. It's reminiscent of Iron Man 3 in that aspect, although I refer you to my earlier rant, in so much as I've now got no real expectation of any sort of consistency or follow-through in the MCU. Um, I'd still prefer a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man as opposed to the magic tech armoured throne commander Spider-Man that he apparently must become Uh, but uh, there's still hope that if seismic societal changes can be ignored then so can this push to adventurise Spider-Man even if that further mocks the concept of a shared universe for these films in the first place and frankly sets alarm uh, alarm bells ringing for whatever phase we're on will hold Uh, there's an increasing number of corners that Marvel have backed themselves into the point where it now looks like the universe is imposed entirely of corners so I'm not quite (laughs) sure how they're going to get out of this but that is a wider concern and in this specific instance I like the film and I think that it's fun and I think that you should watch it and that is my review thank you Spider-Man first I want to address um, a big problem I had with it which appears to be a big problem you had with it too Scott which is the whole lack of consequence thing for the whole half of the population of the universe thing (laughs) and I was thinking when this happened in Endgame, when obviously they were going to bring the people back, right? But I, I'm usually thinking, how does that work? Because I like that they left the five year gap in. Yes. Okay. But I'm like, yeah. But how? How's this going to work? You've got different ages of people now. You've got people who believe other people are dead, so they're going to have moved on, formed new relationships. Exactly. Um, yeah. or, or maybe people who didn't cope with it well and committed suicide or um, died by suicide, something like that. Mm. Right? There's all those things. And there's the actual, the more pragmatic things of food production, jobs, housing. Mm-hmm. Anything like practical like that's not going to mm. work. What would this do uh, to something like religion? Yeah, I mean, yeah. would would cults start forming? All this sort of thing. There's lots of interesting ways you could do it, but nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got problems of housing, jobs. Yeah, the sort of philosophical stuff, the religious stuff, the relationship stuff, families, possible deaths, new relationships. They're also not going to come back. Going to complicate things. Then you've got yeah, food production, education, law enforcement. Presumably, some of the people that died were in prison when they did it. Where do they appear? Right. So, I mean, I don't expect the Marvel Cinematic Universe to treat any of that particularly well. (laughs) I would have expected them to treat it at all, though. At least mention it. (laughs) Yeah. But no, it's. I mean, even the name they've given it, the blip, is there anything so minimising of it? Of what? Well, there is. There is something that minimises it more, Scott, um, and it's a bit that actually genuinely offended me, and um, it kind of it, it really left a sour taste in my mouth. Though, is that um, rather than addressing any of it, they've reduced it to the teacher with the glasses and the beard, um, mm. 
who says that all the the only service that the this incredibly life changing event in every way you can imagine, the only way it really gets mentioned is Spider Man Far From Home is his wife pretended she died in the blip so she could run away with someone else. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's turned into a really crappy joke. Yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of offensive actually. Yeah. You've created <laughs> you've tried to build up this huge thing, this massive crossover events like oh, it's a rotten joke now. Okay. Well thank you. I'm glad I invested my time in that. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, the film itself, on its own, if you can separate it from the larger universe, is a lot of fun. Because Tom Holland's a lot of fun. Despite the terribly ugly glasses he's been left by <laughs> Tony Stark. <laughs> and yeah, I, I had issues going through. I saw all the trailers, and I was really worried by the trailers, because the trailers to me looked awful. Hmm. Because what I liked and what you liked as well, Scott, about Spider-Man Homecoming so much was how low-key it was. It was the neighbourhood Spider-Man. Yeah. And it was a villain with understandable motivations and it wasn't quite megalomaniacal thing. Mm. Um, and it's like, oh, great. No, it's just turned into Avengers with a whole bunch of things being smashed up. Yay. Mm-hmm. Turns out it's not quite like that. Um, so they sold you a dummy there. Yes, I thought that was actually really clever. I, I really appreciated that. Um, the fact that it is still... I mean, this is a Spider-Man film, but it's still really about Tony Stark um, yeah, and yeah. the fallout that his behaviour has left. Um, it, it did bring an extra little dimension to a lot of the... Certainly the whole second half of it made it, made it feel a lot cleverer than, uh, than it certainly could have been. Certainly than the trailers would make it seem to be, which was dumb. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, you have the sort of the postcard um, place destruction, like you mentioned, Scott. Again, though, to a degree, and it's not as much as I feared it would be from the trailer. Uh, the trailers, um, it's certainly better than a fight around the back of an airport, yes. like Civil War had, and that was incredibly <laughs> dull. So it's got that going for it. Uh, uh, yeah, and while we're sort of versing a maniac- uh, megalomaniacal thing um, a bit. The the villain actually maybe a bit closer to um, Michael Keaton in Homecoming, like a bit more understandable, mm-hmm. believable, and more interesting for that. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, yeah, and I absolutely did not see where that was going at all. That totally blindsided me. I mean, if I'd known, <laughs> if I knew the comic books, I suspect I would feel differently. But um, I didn't know anything about these characters or anything. Yeah, had some shades of Iron Man three for me though. Yes. It felt like a wee bit like it was um, retreading something they'd already done. Yes, yes. Did agree. Um, though no awesome Trevor. No. <laughs> oh, what's it called? Trevor. Trevor Slattery. The awesome Trevor Slattery. <laughs> Played by Mr. Ben Kingsley. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's. So it kind of blindsided me, but I, I didn't see where that was going. Um, and Tom Holland's great. And it's just. So yeah, I've got big reservations about the kind of the universe in which it's set because it's just like yeah, I'll pretend that didn't happen because that's yeah. too difficult to write. Let's not bother writing it. Whereas um, in terms of actually what happened, it's really interesting. I mean, there are a few sort of niggles that I tend to have with these sorts of things. Like, there's a a scene where you see a great deal of preparation being required to to make something happen mm-hmm. and then at least two scenes later on where apparently you can make fantastical things happen off the cuff yeah like, it doesn't quite match up but it's not hugely important um and also i'm quite glad they got rid of the horrible spider suit from the beginning that shiny iron man looking thing yeah because uh, that was horrible uh yeah really enjoyed it um it's fun it's funny it's entertaining tom holland is great the only, well, no, two problems I have. One is that like, I just don't understand why Peter Parker didn't tell Nick Fury to go and take a run and jump because mm, yeah. Nick Fury is an asshat in this film. Yeah. <laughs> and it was completely unreasonable. It'd be nice if somebody would just tell him that. And the second thing is that 
it feels like it's getting awfully close to making Spider-Man Iron Man. Yeah, that's what I was getting at with my sort of closing there. I, it, it sounds like, and from the way it ends, it seems like they have now just accepted that, okay, now he's going to be Spider-Man, but a little less sure of himself. Uh, sorry, he's going to be Iron Man, but a little less sure, sure of himself as it goes on, assuming they do keep on doing the sort of big-scale Avengers-y type stuff, um, which is a real shame. I mean, I, I was trying to find a reference for this because I can't quite find it, but I'm sure there was one of these um, you know, galaxy-defining Infinity War type events in the comic books, uh, where it was having a big crossover, and it was just a, a couple of frames of Spider-Man and Daredevil sitting on a rooftop in New York, sort of saying, "Well, I guess we'll need to sit this one out because, well, it was galaxy-scale, you know, people hmm. being battering each other, and we were just two guys who are quite good at beating people up, yeah. and uh, and." Uh, this is obviously not where they're trying to take that character. They're trying to take that character and slap him into an Iron Man suit and have him fly around and do all that stuff. And, you know, I, I like Tom Holland. I'm sure it'll work, but it's not Spider-Man, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, yeah, I, I don't yeah. want him to be Iron Man. I want him to be Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man's the, always the, really the only comic character I ever liked, ever cared about. Um, yeah. Until like, recent running for films from sort of 20 when was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man? 2002, 20 I want to say yeah. two, yeah, yeah. So sort of anything from the 21st century onwards is when I'm interested, but only in films. Mm. I don't care anything else. But I, I like Spider-Man. I want him to be Spider-Man. I don't want to be <laughs> Iron Man light. Yeah. It looks like that's where they're going. I'm concerned about that. Um, I don't find that completely interesting either. But um, this film is entertaining, and that's really all that matters, I guess. Yes, I, I will gladly watch this again a number of times. Um, yeah. Tom Holland's just so much fun to watch, and um, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal is this as well. Uh, you can get almost as much fun from just watching the press junkets they've been doing. They just seem like uh, they've actually, and I think it comes across in the film that it seems like they are actually friends now, and uh, they've kind of bonded, right. and it, it does it does work quite well. Um, yeah, it's... I've not seen a single one of them. I never watched that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Presumably, they're on YouTube or something. Yeah, yeah. Look at them. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, it's uh, yeah, they just seemed like they're quite happy with each other, and I think that that uh, comes across. when there's there's moments where Mysterio as a character is kind of becoming the kind of father figure sort of deal, the sort of pseudo Iron Man replacement that he's trying to uh-huh. become in the end, and um, yeah, the, like the scene in the bar, and uh, you know, it all works, and um, you, you kind of get the impression that that doesn't happen in real life too. Either that or they're just really good actors. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe they're playing us. I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun and I liked it a lot. What more can you say? Quite a lot. I suppose you could go on about the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a long time. I mean, as much as I like to reel about it, it is probably the most interesting thing that film's done in years. I don't necessarily agree with it, but as a as an ambition and as a concept, it's, um, it is quite remarkable. And well, there's yeah, a lot, there's a lot to remark some- about it, yes. To have so many films and for it to be so cohesive, and while I have problems clearly, um, it's a remarkable achievement. Exactly. So yeah. I think they're they're now kind of undermining their own achievement yeah. and not giving it the the weight it deserves. Yes, and I I don't see where they go from this. Um, that's why I'm getting up with these sort of corners comments. It seems like maybe Avengers Endgame should have been the reset. It should have just went back to zero, and uh, we could have started again from zero um, because. I, I can't really see a path from here that would make anything sort of cohesive. And um, the elements from the cinematic universe that have leached into Far From Home are its weakest aspects. And that doesn't really set in a positive light for whatever's going to happen in the future. But, well, they've surprised me before. Maybe they'll surprise me again. Who can say? Yeah, um, especially because the, another couple of films have sort of touched on it, but there is the the issue they have of having set up all these characters knowing each other too and so then they have to address in the film like well why aren't they helping yes so and then they have those really awkward scenes like where's Thor off world what we Captain Marvel don't even invoke her name that's, that's, why why yeah exactly <laughs> it's like um, it's something that's literally going to tear the planet apart uh, as, as it was presented at the time it's like well shouldn't she get involved isn't yeah wouldn't that be quite helpful <laughs> yes I was like, hello, I'm 16. Yes. <laughs> why am I doing it? Also, why are you, government operative, trying to force a 16-year-old to um, kill, potentially kill himself to help people? He's 16. Yes. <laughs> yes. Next year, he just needs to be told to um, where to get off in this. 
yeah, so that will wrap us up for today. We'll be back with you soon enough with some look at with a look at some intriguing seventies science fiction films. But until that time, you must take care of yourself and each other. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us for any particular reason, uh, you can do on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com slash film or you can do it on facebook facebook.com slash film or of course you can email us at podcast at com. so yes a fair URL, and I'm sure Drew will echo those sentiments yes I echo those sentiments of goodbye <laughs> not really a sentiment I suppose is about as a word but uh, yeah fair enough fairly well 